Okay, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, heavenly Father, uh, we do pray in your great mercy uh, that you would let us hear your word and receive it as your word so that uh, trusting you in a changing world, we would have a sure hope and know how to live uh, so that we honour you and are a blessing to others. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, most of the changes are in the second half. Now, now you probably noticed uh, things have been changing for Christians. Uh, we no longer represent the social consensus on key issues and no longer regarded as the trustees of a desirable morality. Things Christians think are wrong are enshrined in law and often supported by the state. Think abortion, voluntary assisted dying, same-sex marriage. Being identified as an evangelical Christian is enough to get you sacked from a football club board and publicly denounced by a state premier. And these are just signs of a more radical shift in the beliefs and values of our society, a shift that's been taking place for a while that has become obvious, even dominant over the last three decades. Where for hundreds of years in the West, what David Riefeld called the Christian worldview held sway, that's a consensus amongst the population that there's a God who could be known, that the world he had made has a moral fabric which should guide our choices, that the Lord Jesus was the model of the good life and we could know about him in the Bible and that our lives had purpose and would one day be judged by God who would decide where each of us spent eternity, whereas that worldview has held sway for hundreds of years. That Christian worldview is now being supplanted by what Rietveld calls the post-Christian worldview. In that understanding of the world, the human person is at the centre, not God. And the most important thing is being true to ourselves, which means listening to and giving weight to our intuitions and feelings as our guide in life. Everyone, we are told, has the right to be themselves, express themselves and live by their own truth. And love is accepting and affirming people in their choices, not encouraging them to be like Jesus. And what makes us feel good is good. Now, Rietveld uses the metaphor of history as a divine drama to give a sense of what has happened. In a Christian worldview, he writes, God seen as the author the director, the audience, and God the Son's the leading actor in this drama. We, humans, find our rightful place in the drama as extras, whose role is to shed light only because we carry a divine spark from God, because Jesus' spirit is in us, allowing us to imitate and point people to Christ. But in the Western post-Christian worldview, we have decided that if there ever was a director... He's been absent for so long and, and the show's continued just fine without him so that, well, we take over the theatre. Furthermore, we can change the direction of the plot. If the leading actor is absent and we have been improvising with success, we imagine the drama is now an autobiography where we get to tell our story. Actors look to their own spirit, supposing it's theirs to interpret and express the stories about us 
now, individually, and not God. We are no longer the extras. In a sense, everything in the move from the Christian worldview to the post-Christian worldview has changed. And as a consequence, Christians who are committed to God being at the centre now find themselves on the outer, marginalised in the public debate and regarded with suspicion by many as enemies of authentic freedom. And even if we can't give words to this change, most of us, or at least those of us who are over 20, uh, who can remember when things were different, feel this change taking place around us and all of us can recognise how different what our contemporaries seem to believe and take for granted is from the way scripture reveals our world to be. It is a radical, deeply disorienting change in beliefs and values and it seems to be accelerating, change that can make believers re-examine their assumptions that can even subtly reshape their thinking and living if we are not aware of what is happening. But knowing things are changing, how should we respond to this change? How can we not only survive in this new environment as followers of Jesus, but actually thrive and be a blessing to the community in which we live? That's what Jeremiah 29 will tell us. Jeremiah's letter is addressed to all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon, people who had been subjected to enormous and disorienting change. And Jeremiah effectively says, stop listening to lies and receive my words as they are, the words of the living God. Believe them and put them into practice and you will not just survive but thrive in your new environment and be a blessing to the community you are living amongst. Right. So Jeremiah's now in the fourth decade of his ministry and the destruction from the north that he's prophesied for decades from the beginning has now started. We read in Kings that King Jehoiakim, having first submitted to Nebuchadnezzar, then rebelled against him. As a consequence, the king of Babylon sent his troops against Jerusalem and Jehoiakim's successor, his son Jehoiachin, surrendered to him then and was taken to Babylon, along with the leading men, 7,000 soldiers and 1,000 craftsmen, as a way of pacifying uh, Judah. And Jeremiah's letters addressed to these deportees. But Jerusalem was left standing and Nebuchadnezzar appointed a new king, Zedekiah, another son of Josiah, to reign there as his vassal. So life was, in a sense, continuing as normal for those left in Jerusalem. They still had a temple, they had a descendant of David reigning, they had sacrifice and priesthood and possession of the land. But for those deported, everything had changed. They'd lost everything. They'd lost access to the Lord in the temple, lost their place in Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, lost their inheritance in the land of Israel, the land of promise. They had lost the future they had anticipated, living in the land their ancestors had inhabited for centuries. And now they were uncertain if they would ever be able to return. And in their new environment in Babylon, where once they'd had social position and status, 
the deportees were now at the bottom of the social pile, more like indentured servants of the Babylonian Empire. They were taking orders from people whose language they didn't speak. Regarded, they were regarded with suspicion as members of a rebellious and failed people and they were surrounded by gods that they did not know. So how should they think and act in their radically changed circumstances? Jeremiah's letter tells them. But we also see in Jeremiah 29 that his was not the only voice speaking into their circumstances. Just being in Babylon, they were hearing other voices. Just being in Babylon, the people were exposed to what you might say was the uh, commentary of their conquerors, the Babylonians. Uh, And that was a pretty simple commentary. It was, we won because our gods are stronger than your god. Your god's out of his depth now and can't compete. So you ought to forget the past because your old belief system is obsolete, irrelevant to your new circumstances and join us. Get on the winning side. Adopt our customs and way of life and our God. So they were hearing that that voice. And as you also heard in Jeremiah 29, they had (coughs) prophets, lying prophets, active in the community of the deportees. Don't let your prophets who are amongst you mislead you, says the Lord. And it would seem from that objection of that bloke called Shemaiah at the end of chapter 29 that the message of the prophets living in Babylon was much the same as the message of the prophets in Jerusalem, the message of Hananiah that we saw in chapter 28. You know, he was prophesying that within two years, I'll restore to this place all the articles of the Lord's temple. I'll restore to this place Jeconiah and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon. I'll break the yoke of the king of Babylon. These prophets were holding out hope that Babylonian power would soon be destroyed and the deportees able to return to Jerusalem. In their view, God was committed to protecting Jerusalem forever and destroying its enemies. And so Jerusalem was the focus of their hope and the goal for the exiles was not to settle down but to do everything they could to get back there. God's anger was temporary, they said, and they had passed and had passed and everything would soon get back to the way it was without any repentance. That's, of course, why they were so angry with Jeremiah who spoke of both the destruction of Jerusalem, as you heard, verses 15 to 19, and told the people, the deportees, to settle down and seek Babylon's welfare. Oh, and it would seem from Nebuchadnezzar's vengeance on the prophet Ahab and Zedekiah, recorded in verses 20 to 23, that these prophets also harboured and encouraged anti-Babylonian sentiment and activity supported the continuing plotting, say, of King Zedekiah back in Jerusalem to free Jerusalem from Babylonian rule. That's a fair inference because Nebuchadnezzar did not roast them for their personal morality but for their sedition. So in the lying prophets, to listen to Jeremiah was both theologically wrong for hadn't God made promises about Jerusalem and the reign of David's descendants and a betrayal of the nation. 
He was, in their view, a faithless traitor. Now, in the midst of these other voices, Jeremiah, whose words have already been proved true by the deportation itself, and whose words would soon be confirmed by the destruction of Jerusalem and the death of the lying prophets, says to the deportees, stop listening to lies and trust the word of the God, who in his words is revealed as sovereign, gracious and faithful, and trusting him, find hope and a way to live which will allow you not only to survive but to thrive in this new world. That's right, Jeremiah proclaims in his letter that God is sovereign. Did you notice that? You know, it says in verse 1 that these were the exiles Nebuchadnezzar deported. But you get to verses 4 and 7 and you see the Lord says, I deported you from Jerusalem. I deported you. So Jeremiah is saying to these deportees, if they are in Babylon, it wasn't because of an accident or because the Babylonian gods were stronger. Nebuchadnezzar, with all his glory and power in deporting them, had been doing the Lord's will, was his servant. But the Lord was in charge. And he said it was he who had deported them to Babylon. The movement of armies, the selection of who was to go, was all under the Lord's control. (coughs) He rules over history. And so he can reveal what will be the future with certainty because he brings it to pass by his almighty power. He knows what he's doing. Now, Now notice that if you were in Babylon, you would feel, wouldn't you, that that was a big call. There you are, surrounded by Babylonian power. The Babylonians seem to be doing exactly what they will. But the Lord says he is in control. And you've got grounds for believing it, haven't you? Because actually the Lord spoke of this deportation, spoke of this judgment, And the Lord actually had already pronounced judgment on Babylon in chapter 25. And it's this judgment that Jeremiah will go on to speak of in verse 10 when he says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. A big call, but it's actually a word we know to have been proved true. 70 years, Cyrus comes, Babylon's destroyed, the Jews go back. The Lord is sovereign. He knows what he's doing and that means he can tell them their future with certainty. Knowing God's sovereignty, the deportees can plan to live in Babylon for the present in light of the future he reveals. Plan with certainty, not anxiety. For the Lord's future is certain. Jeremiah proclaims the Lord's sovereign. And Jeremiah also proclaims that the Lord is gracious. Did you notice that at the end of, uh, in chapters, uh, in, 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 we'll come in verse 19. So he says to the deportees, when 70 years are complete, I'll attend to you and confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. 
For I know the plans I have for you, uh, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now notice, by the way, he is not talking to us individually. He is talking to the deportees in Judah. So so, uh, don't misuse this verse, right? Uh, But... That's actually an incredibly gracious promise. You see, the people left, the deportees were the people, those left in Judah thought the Lord had abandoned. But the Lord speaks of his plans to do them good, to give them that hope and a future, yet it's not because they are any better than those left in Judah. Did you see that in verse 19? I'll do this, and that's the judgment on Jerusalem because they have not listened to my words. But he finishes by saying, and you too have not listened. They're not better. The Lord will do the deportees good because he is graciously determined to do so. And in his grace will give them a heart to seek him. Jeremiah calls the deportees to trust God's sovereignty and his grace and also to trust his faithfulness, his faithfulness to his covenant. You see, in Deuteronomy, hundreds of years before, the Lord had promised that he would be found by those who were exiled for their sin who sought him. In fact, the words that we read in verses 12 to 13 actually come from Deuteronomy 4. You will call to me and come and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me, search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. And in Deuteronomy 4, hundreds of years before, the Lord had said, but from there, that is, from the foreign lands, that the people have been sent to because of their rebellion. You will search for the Lord your God and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things have happened to you, in the future you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. He will not leave you, destroy you. Forget the covenant with your ancestors that he swore to them by oath because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. In fact, the phrase found in uh, in verse 14, I will restore your fortunes, is actually a phrase from Deuteronomy 30, which again speaks of the Lord's compassion on a judged and repentant people who return to him. What Jeremiah is promising the deportees is that they will find the Lord faithful to his word, faithful to his covenant with Israel and trusting the sovereign, gracious and faithful God, the deportees can have, as we heard in verse 10, a sure hope of restoration. Oh, yeah, maybe sometime coming, 70 years, but it is certain. They can know that their present home will not be their permanent home. And this is the future which they will come to enjoy as they turn to the Lord. Jeremiah speaks of what the Lord will do 
But the people aren't passive in it. The people aren't passive in God bringing about what he has planned for them. You see, Jeremiah calls for active response. The word of God calls for active response. The people seeking the Lord and searching with all their hearts, they're trusting and obeying. God's purposes are achieved through his people coming to will what he wills. And trusting the word of the sovereign, gracious, faithful God, they can know how to live in their new context, in the midst of this change, live to thrive and to bless. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. God says to them, build, plant, multiply. Because he is sovereign, gracious, faithful. They can throw themselves in to purposeful lives, lives marked by growth and fruitfulness in what is their present but not their permanent home. And they are, verse 7, to pursue peace, the well-being, the prosperity of the city in which the Lord has placed them. More, they can include it and its welfare in their relationship with the Lord as part of their prayers. Now think about that. Babylon was a city already known to be under God's judgment from chapter 25. It was an idolatrous city. Its rulers marked by violence. It's a city that has caused these deportees grief, a city where they were outsiders. Yet trusting the Lord, they were to seek its peace and know that it's in its thriving, they would thrive. Trusting and obeying the word of God is good. It's good for the deportees who knew themselves believing God's word to be not abandoned by God, but to be a people who had a hope and sure guidance about how to live in all this very disruptive and unlooked-for change. But believing and obeying the word of God is also good for those they lived amongst. It meant the deportees were not to be sullen and resentful, keeping themselves uninvolved in the needs of this foreign city. They were not to be so disdainful of the idolatrous culture that they spent their time just condemning people. Trusting and obeying the Lord, they were to seek and serve the welfare of their neighbours. Seek it even from the Lord. The word of the sovereign, gracious, faithful God brings hope and guidance in the midst of disorienting change. For Jeremiah's hearers, the deportees, and for us. Because we also have a word from the living God that proclaims his sovereignty, his grace, and his faithfulness to his people. And it's not a new word. It's actually the gospel word. That Christ has died for our sins, been buried, and been raised from the dead to reign at God's right hand. You see, that word proclaims, in fact, doesn't just proclaim, that word demonstrates 
that our God is and continues to be sovereign, gracious, faithful. Sovereign. Think of all that was involved in bringing Jesus' saving death to pass. Oh, bringing the Roman Empire, bringing it to reign in Judah. Actually, bring Judah, Judas to betray him. There's so much involved in the Lord saving us through the death of Jesus. So much that depends on his rule over all things. He is sovereign. And he has worked through that death to exalt Jesus as Lord. He now reigns with all authority in heaven and on earth. He continues to be sovereign. And our Lord is directing history, including our history, to fulfill his purpose, that the gospel goes to the end of the earth. See, the gospel says, there's nothing that happens that is not subject to the Lord Jesus, including our changing society. Oh, it teaches us that he's in charge, that say, for example, he will restrain the man of lawlessness until it's time for him to be revealed. And then the Lord will be revealed in glory and slay him. The Lord Jesus rules, the gospel says. And if we're living through these times, it's because he has put us here and we don't need to be anxious about his capacity to fulfil his purposes for us and for the world. The gospel tells us our God is sovereign and continues to be sovereign. And the gospel tells us our God is gracious and continues to be gracious. I mean, the gospel says Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world and died to save sinners, rebels, to make them his disciples. And he did that to make disciples of all nations across all time. And he didn't just do it back then. He continues to keep rescuing people who don't deserve his rescue, and he's doing that today here, isn't he? The fact that proud, ungrateful, entitled, wealthy Westerners like me, I don't know about you, I don't want to presume, but the fact that we can, well, I can be saved is a great miracle, isn't it? He is gracious and he continues to save and will until the end. It's always been saving grace for sinners. And the fact that we live in the midst of sinners doesn't make the gospel less relevant. It just means that it's still the message that needs to be heard. The gospel reveals our God as sovereign and gracious and it reveals him as faithful. You see, in Jesus' death and rising, God keeps his promises to Israel, even the promise he made in Jeremiah 31 that we'll probably hear next week of a new covenant, of a, of a saving king, of a servant who would suffer. It proclaims he is faithful and he continues faithful. The church is still the bride of the Lord Jesus for whom he gave himself. He never abandons her, whether she's being seduced by wealth and worldliness or crushed by harsh oppression. He will be faithful to his word. It doesn't become void or powerless to achieve his purposes because people refuse to hear it. And the Lord has promised to work all things, including great cultural changes for the good of his people. 
make them opportunities for us to grow like his son. And so we don't need to fear or be anxious about the changes we're experiencing. We can be confident in our God who speaks to us and reveals himself to be sovereign, gracious and faithful in the gospel. And that gospel gives us still a glorious and certain future. This world, our society, is our present home, but not our permanent home, is it? Our permanent home is the new Jerusalem to which our Lord will bring us when he returns in glory. He's already secured it for us by his death and rising. So we can live in our present home knowing that our permanent home is secure. And being marginalised, being at the bottom of the social pile doesn't change that hope at all. It is entirely independent of the world's judgment on us. And believing and obeying the gospel of our sovereign, gracious, faithful God, we too know how to live through this time of change. Not just to survive as his people, but to thrive and bless See, the New Testament comes from a time when believers were an irrelevant minority, so little's changed, right? And it gives us lots of direction about how we can live in an idolatrous culture. But I want you to think with me about the Sermon on the Mount, not all of it, just the first 12 verses, the Beatitudes, because they stand in contrast with some wrong ways of believers, in a sense, interacting with a sinful society, a rebellious society. So consider how these Beatitudes, and they're not coming up on the screen because I'm assuming you know them, okay? After the Ten Commandments, you, you know, right? Consider how they guide our interaction with our society. Where do they start? They tell us believers should be poor in spirit, not entitled and demanding but knowing that the foundation of the Christian life is humility, the humility that can count others, including people who don't believe, as more important than ourselves. Oh, (coughs) it tells us to be mourners, people who can grieve for the harm done to many lives by our proud individualism, who take no joy in people reaping what they sow as we see around us in our society. See, grieving is the opposite of dismissing the wounded and broken by sin, of saying, oh, they're getting what they deserve. It reckons them as people who matter and so laments their suffering. It tells us where to be meek, different from those who noisily demand that they and their wishes be at the centre of society's agenda, where to control ourselves to promote others' good. And we can do it because we trust our God, the just judge, and know that this life is not ultimate. (coughs) But the meek help a society hold together. Oh, it tells us where to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We don't become like those around us, settling for what makes us comfortable or fulfills our desires. We're to be people who can't rest unless we're conforming our lives to what God says is right, whether that's in our use of money or the way we use our tongues, keeping our word, being sexually self-controlled, 
We are to be merciful. We don't act to take vengeance on those who oppose us and disagree with us. Don't seek to humiliate and shame our opponents, which we see increasingly in our society is the case. We're to be pure in heart. In a world where people are always anxious about the validation of others being affirmed by them, getting those likes on social media, Christians are to live with the freedom of living to please God alone. And so we'll be people with integrity, reliable and trustworthy, not changing as people's opinions about us change. And in a world where people are seeking to please their idols, whether it's power or wealth, idols which set people against each other, we seek to please the God who loves even enemies. We're to be peacemakers in an increasingly divided society. We're to always hold the door open to peace with God and others through believing the gospel that unites people in differences, Jew and Greek, slave and free, barbarian, Scythian, who know that peace comes through repentance and forgiveness. And we are to be people willing to suffer for righteousness because we know this life is not all there is. So we should be people who are willing to trade happiness in this life, even life itself, for believing obedience to the Lord. Now this is to be the way of those who know that the living God is sovereign, gracious and faithful because they confess that the crucified Jesus is Lord, Lord of all. And in living this way, we seek the peace. We promote the welfare of our society, don't we? For where we are those whom the Lord Jesus reckons to be blessed, we are salt and light. We stop the decay that darkness brings. We drive out the darkness. That's the way we are to live. And if we live that way, we will bless our society. You know, to live through these times, we have to embrace the gospel and reject the lies. And there are just two I want to draw your attention to. Uh, Firstly, of course, is what again is the conqueror's story, the lies of a triumphant secularism. You know it because you hear it all the time. We banished God, banished God from public life, God's unnecessary to human progress and happiness. In fact, we are better off, free and more happy, able to realise our own choices without God and his rules. And this life is all there is. So you don't need to worry about what's going to come. Just live your best life now. And don't let your choices about what's best for you be limited by an obsolete God and his irrelevant instructions. Now, of course, that is just the old lie in modern clothes. You will be like God. You can replace God. That is just Adam's sin repeated in his offspring. And we know what that brings. It brings a society where people are set against each other. It brings division. It brings the rule of violence. 
Oh, and we know where it ends. God has already pronounced judgment on Adam's sin and on a world in rebellion against him. And we know that judgment is sure because he has raised the Lord Jesus through whom he will judge the world from the dead. So we shouldn't believe that lie. But there's another lie that may be more attractive to Christians, and that is let's get back to the way things were. You see, people have become concerned about the drift of our society. They want to return to the Western tradition shaped by centuries of Christian teaching because they say, you know, we've lost our way and that will make the West strong again. And that kind of desire can shade into kinds of Christian nationalism where, you know, things were all good when we were Christian states and and that's what we've got to put our efforts into, gaining power to get that state of affairs, the way things were back. But people want that without repentance. They want the fruit without the root. They want that power without repentance for, say, the exploitation of colonies or endemic racism or oppression of minorities and the stance to the wider society that it breeds is often one of hostility and suspicion, condemnation and carping criticism. Not the love that seeks to save and rescue. Trusting this gospel word and rejecting lies, believing and obeying the word God speaks to us in the midst of change, we can have hope. And we can know how to thrive. So as you think about and experience our radically changing times, as you feel our society changing around you, believe and keep believing the gospel of the saving, sovereign, gracious, faithful and living God who has raised his son Jesus and exalted him over all. Keep living the life of repentance and faith. Repentance, saying that despite what our culture says, you are not the boss and your best life is not found in being true to yourself and pursuing your own passions and dreams. The best life is found in believing Jesus, saying he's the boss, and life is found in trusting him. Denying yourself, not seeking power for yourself because you think you're better. Denying yourself and following him by doing what he says. Because that actually is the best life and it is eternal life. And repenting and believing, keep on repenting and believing. Saying no to making yourself the centre of the story and keeping the Lord Jesus and his word at the centre. Because in our culture, we can make ourselves the centre, even while we call ourselves Christians and do it almost without knowing it. You know, we can think of Jesus as existing to bless and protect me, and I'm still the important one and he serves my dreams. Or we can claim and rely on forgiveness while not turning away from sin, using Jesus' death just as a prop prop 
to make us comfortable in disobeying, in pursuing the sins we love. Or we can talk about how God loves me, and yet the emphasis is all on the me, on telling myself I must be so wonderful and special that he loves me, that he's just invested in me, and not on the extraordinary nature of a love that would love someone who is as unlovely, so wrapped up in myself as I am. It's the spirit of the age to keep putting ourselves, our wants and desires and the sins we love at the centre. But that is not the Christian way. It's actually Jesus at the centre, Jesus ahead of us and we following. His word to be trusted and obeyed, his will to be done even if it costs me, costs me my pleasures, costs me my cherished dreams, costs me my peace and safety because his is the way of life and the way of love. And where we keep Jesus at the centre, where we live that life of faith, we'll pursue the blessed life the Lord Jesus spoke of. You know, that life of humility and meekness and hungering for righteousness the life that will do our neighbours good by being salt and light in a world that rejects our God. And yes, like Jeremiah's people, we'll be praying for our rulers and the peace and welfare of our society. Do you do that? Oh, I know we often pray for our rulers, but let's think more widely. Take climate change. What do you do about it? Do you, you know, grumble? because ah, they don't know what they're doing and it's all too expensive, or grumble because actually they're just not doing enough quick enough. Or do you actually pray for it? Pray that God would actually give us some wise people and insight and provide solutions. Doesn't he rule the world? Oh, and we'll be saying no to the pursuit of individualistic pleasure to serve by doing good. That's right, when we come to our choices, we won't ask what is best for me. We'll actually ask, where can I do the most good that will bring honour to our Lord Jesus? And yes, in an increasingly divided society where people hold their positions intensely because this is the only life they think they've got, we can actually be meek and choose to suffer rather than cause suffering. Because while this is our present home, we know it's not our ultimate home. For God has given us a future and a hope in the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word given to Jeremiah, uh, to those deportees whose lives have been so disrupted uh, by things so outside their control. We thank you that it's a word that proclaims you as you are, sovereign, gracious, faithful, the God whose word gives hope and directs us how to live so that we can thrive and do good. Now, Father, we pray that hearing that word, we would also hear the gospel word, that reveals you to be in saving through your Son, sovereign, gracious and faithful. 
and that holding fast to that word, we would live lives of repentance and faith that do good in the world and rejoice in the hope you give us. We ask this in Jesus' name.